That's the book of Jude found on page 1233, starting at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage." But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy without fear, 
hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What then are we to do when Little Red Riding Hood comes to church? I don't know how familiar you are with the children's nursery story. I'm told the original Grimm's fairy tale was considerably more gruesome than the rather tamed version that I was told as a child. But the basic kind of plot, small girl sent to visit grandma, small girl travels to grandma's cottage through the woods, small girl intercepted by wolf, wolf makes casual inquiries. Wolf races on ahead to grandma's cottage, and this is where it gets a little eccentric, Wolf swallows grandma whole. Wolf disguises self in grandma's bed, in grandma's clothes. Small girl arrives. What big eyes you have, grandma. And the rest, as they say, is history. But what do we do when Grimm's fairy tale takes place before us in the church? Well, when I say Little Red Riding Hood, I don't mean Little Red Riding Hood herself. If you've come this evening in a red coat with a hood and you happen to be slightly smaller stature, I hope you're not feeling this is all about you. It isn't. What I'm saying is what happens when the kind of the plot line of Little Red Riding Hood, as it were, comes to church, when the wolf enters the church? Jesus warned us that they would beware wolves in sheep's clothing. Peter, Paul, John, James, all the apostles insisted that there would be false teachers in the church. What to do? You can see from verse 1 that the letter we're considering for the next four weeks is by Jude. Jude declares himself to be the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Read it there, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. James was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He was also Jesus' brother. Jude was at least the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And it seems most likely that this letter was written around about the same time as Peter's second letter to Peter. They're very dependent on one another. There are a lot of very common themes, and people argue as to which one was first. It seems they were written about the same time. Now, if that is the case, Peter was martyred certainly by 67 AD, probably by 64 AD. Here we have a letter written just 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And that makes it most interesting because already in the church, within 30 years, the wolf has entered. And so what are we to do? You can see straight away that from the earliest point, Jude had wanted to write a different letter. Just look at verse 3 there. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So you might call this the letter that shouldn't have been written. Jude considered he had to write it. He had to dash it off quickly. He wanted to write more extensively about our common salvation, but he had to write this quickly to catch the first post, to get it in the post box, because urgent news had come to him. And verse 4 tells us what the news is. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord. 
Jesus Christ. So what are we to do when the plot line of Little Red Riding Hood comes into the church of Christ, when certain people creep in unnoticed? Now, we've got four weeks. It seems to me this is most important for us to consider, important generally, because if within 30 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, wolves had come into the church, false teachers, then this will be so of every single generation down through the centuries, and it has proven to be true. And so in terms of life lessons for Christians, for us as, us as a generation, for you as a generation, for us in the broadest possible sense as a generation, what are we to do? We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to know what happens when what Jesus said would happen does happen. But much, much more important, particularly as we consider St. Helens as a church today in the Church of England in 2023, what are we to do when Little Red Riding Hood comes to church, when false teachers have entered? Well, we've got four weeks. I don't want to race it. And today we're just going to look mainly at verses 1 to 3 and then dip into verse 4. But most importantly, first up, there in verse 3, there is a body of saving truth that establishes God's church. We must contend for it. There is a body of saving truth that establishes God's church. We must contend for it. And then we may have time. There will be secret agents who infiltrate. We must contend. Verse 3. Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, it's important that we realize that the faith there is not my faith. This is not something subjective and individual to each one of us. It's something objective out there. It is the faith, the truth. I popped in to see my predecessor at St. Helens, the previous rector. He was rector here for 37 years. He's now 97, and I popped in to see him. He lives next door to me yesterday evening. We were chatting about the new year. He asked me what we were going to be looking at in uh, Sunday's uh, in our Bible teaching, and I said, Jude, and his face lit up, and he said, you know, there are certain verses that are absolutely key verses that punctuate the whole letter, and one of them is verse 3, and I said, yeah, we're going to spend whole of tomorrow evening on it. He said, yeah, you should probably spend longer than that, William, but he said this, it's most important we realize that it's not my faith, it's the faith. Then he said this, I can only have my faith if we have the faith. I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Once for all, once for all delivered, once for all is not once for all people. Some people get that wrong. It's once for all time. It speaks of a one-off event and a one-time revelation. The word is hapax. It is a reference to a time, a point in time, and a one-off event that is not repeated. To contend for the faith, once for all time, delivered, is close to a technical turn. It speaks an official authoritative handing over. We had a registered delivery here on 
Friday afternoon. It was a sort of non-alcoholic communion wine, and one of the ladies who's sitting here had to sign for it and prove her age for non-alcoholic communion. I'm not quite sure why, but it's like that kind of registered delivery. Delivered, once for all delivered, handed over to the saints. The saints is all Christians. So then, Listen carefully to this. Because Christianity is an historical religion bound into and defined by specific events in time and space, therefore Christianity is inescapably tied, and I'll explain this, to the particularity of the Incarnation. That is, the very specific and particular things that happened when Jesus came into the world and revealed previously unknown and unseen truth from God. These are the particularities of his coming, the things that he's revealed. Because Christianity is an historical religion bound into and defined by specific events in time and space, therefore Christianity is inescapably tied to the particularity of the coming, the work of Jesus Christ, the faith, once for all time, delivered to the saints. Oh, you can't add to it, you'll take away from it. If you take away from it, you deny it. We're talking about Jesus' teaching, we're talking about Jesus' miracles, we're talking about Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, and therefore the witnesses and the words of the original hearers their circle, it's absolutely foundational. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, contend for it. They are the authoritative group who speak with delegated, recognized authority about the truth that Jesus delivered to us in time and space, in history. There is a body of saving truth that establishes God's church a recognized group of teachers appointed by Jesus, an authenticated group of apostles with his authority, his training, his commission to record and to instruct the faith once for all time delivered. Now, this is so important, and it's going to be so important to this whole letter, brief of the letter as the letter is, that I want to pause and spend a little bit of time on it. This is what Jesus taught us to expect. So if you wouldn't mind, turn back to page... Keep a finger in Jude, because you'll never find him again. Go back to page 1088. I mean, I hope you'll get to be real friends with Jude. It's a good name, Jude, isn't it? Page 1088. Here is Jesus speaking to his apostles on the evening before he was crucified. 1088. Chapter 16, verse 12. This is what he says to the apostles. He says this. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, that is the apostles, into all the truth. For he won't speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you, you apostles. 
So is there anything that the Father has that he hasn't given to Jesus? Answer, no. All that the Father has is mine, says Jesus. Is there anything that Jesus has that he's not given to the apostles in terms of what he wants us to know about him and about saving uh, revelation? The answer is no. The all comes twice to guide you into all the truth. All that the Father has is mine, and I'm giving it to you. And so then there is a body of truth with these recognized apostles that is the truth that God has got for you and God has got for me. It is the faith once for all time delivered to the church through the apostles. And that, of course, is what the other apostles wrote about. We, we um, spoke one, to one another in these last days. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He spoken. It's said, it's done, there's a body of truth. And Peter says something very similar. Just turn back from Jude about five pages to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, it's on page 1225. Don't lose Jude, 1225. Verse 16 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, it's 1224 actually. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Look at verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. The faith, once delivered, to the saints. Irenaeus, writing in 180 AD, said this, it's not possible that the Gospels be either more or fewer than they are. There are four zones of the world in which we live, four principal winds, north, east, south, and west. The pillar and the ground of the church is the Gospel. We have four pillars. He recognizes that there's a body of authoritative truth, and so has the church down through the ages. Now, I realize that this is very, very hard for us in our age to get our heads around. Well, you may be saying, well, I got my head around it completely about five minutes ago. What are you wittering on about? But it is difficult in our age, isn't it? Because we've been brought up to believe that all truth is relative. You have your truth. I have my truth. Each culture has its truth. No one can suggest that anyone else's truth is anything other than their take on a particular event. What is more, it's impossible to establish the real truth because each witness to the event has his or her own take on it, so we can never be really sure. Now, of course, that view that there is no such thing as truth is itself a truth claim and a not very subtle but very sinister power play Oh, there is no truth. Hang on, that's a truth claim. And Jesus challenges it to its very core. Remember what Jesus says before Pilate. For this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Anyone on the side of truth listens to me. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. I am the way, the truth, the life. And this absolute truth of the faith once for all delivered to the saints can be verified. 
because there are multiple sources for Gospels. They can be checked against each other. Then the epistles, written so very shortly after the events, as we've been seeing, they can be checked against the Gospels. And then the multiple sources plugged into a matrix of understanding down through the whole of the Old Testament with fulfillment and explanation and expectation. And then fixed historical, meteorological, botanical, archaeological, and sociological details that we find in the gospel accounts and the Acts of the Apostles that can be checked against the trade winds and the dates and the reigning kings and what kind of flowers grew in that particular area that are being described and the sociology of the time. And then there are extra-biblical sources as well. And then there's the simple logic of it, that if God has broken into his world and revealed his saving truth, then it is the original eyewitnesses authorized by God who are the trustworthy sources. There is the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And that's the way history works. That's the way eyewitness works, isn't it? I don't know if you listen to the Rest is History podcast. I listen to it in my bath, about a third at a time, in case you're worried about whether I'm going to drown or melt or anything like that, or our heating bills are going to be too serious. Each episode, about an hour long, I think a third's quite reasonable. So that's what we get, a third in the bath of the Rest is History. But they've just done a series on Auschwitz, my grandfather was one of the first people into Belsen. He told me about it. You couldn't believe it. And yet there's testimony, and other testimony, and eyewitness, and further verification. And then we have the truth. And that is what we have in our hands here. The faith, once for all, delivered. And Jude writes to us... He doesn't tell us which church he's writing to. It's the saints. Could be any church. It's us, the saints. We have this faith once for all delivered. And he says, contend for it. Because so much hangs on it. Did you notice some of the things that hang on it? Verse 2, for example. Verse 1, to those who are called beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Each one of those truths called, beloved, kept. They're glorious truths, aren't they? If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've put your faith in him, you've been called by Jesus Christ by God the Father, the creator of the universe, you've been summoned by him to put your trust in him. How did that come about? Through the faith, once for all delivered. And if you have been called and summoned to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are beloved by God the Father. Loved by the creator of the universe, the only person whose love really matters and if you've been called and you are beloved, you will be kept. And in an age of such acute insecurity, is that not a glorious reality for the Christian? Called, beloved, kept. Mercy, P, 
peace, love be multiplied to you. How? Through the faith once for all delivered. That's how it comes to us, through the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you scrap to, you scrap or add to or subtract from the faith once for all delivered. Can you see what failed to contend for the faith once for all delivered as a generation? Can you see what your children, I mean, you're probably not thinking about this now, your grandchildren, can you see what's going to happen as there is no church for them to go to, no faith, because we haven't contended? I hope you grasp what is at stake. I used to come to St. Helens back in the 1980s. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Way back then, before the, all the redevelopment of the building, all these big towers were up. And you know, when you came into London in the 1980s from outside London, in central London, there were basically three, I mean, there must be one or two more, but basically three churches that you would go to if you were going to hear about the faith once for all delivered. And today I could number 20 because people have contended. And Jude comes to us and he says, but what about you in your school, in your university? amongst your family and friends, in the workplace. I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Notice it's written to the whole church. Oh, this isn't just William the Rector. I mean, that's my title. I am the rector. I don't quite know what it means, but anyway, that's what I am. It's not just Luke over here and or Jess Davis or Sarah or one of the staff here, it's, no, you, it's the whole church that is to contend for the faith once delivered. Every single one of us to contend for the faith once delivered. And notice that if we want there to be a gospel for the next generation, we'll have to fight for it. Again, that's not popular, is it? In our age that we will actually have to contend for it. Well, we've got just a couple of moments to peep at verse 4. We'll spend more on verse 4 later. You may be saying, well, why all this fuss about contending? Verse 4, there are always going to be secret agents who will infiltrate the church. You must contend. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, there are at least six, possibly seven sections to this letter. We haven't even started really properly into the first major section. But you'll see certain people, verse 4, verse 8, these people, verse 10, these people, verse 12, these, over the page, verse 16, these are, verse 19, it is these who cause divisions. And we are broadly going to follow the, 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 uh, the divisions of the letter around, around that piece. But you can see they've crept in. Initially, they weren't noticed. They didn't really realize it was them. What big eyes you've got, Grandma. And gradually, it begins to dawn. To creep in unnoticed translates a word that speaks of settling in alongside, entering by stealth, came in stealthily, crept in unawares. Later in the letter, Jude talks about them as being hidden 
reefs, that's reef as in nautical reef under the surface, not reef as in anything else, and uh, they're hidden reefs, that is rocks under the surface of the water at your love feasts. So they're, they're with you receiving the Lord's Supper. They're part of the small group. They're in the church, hidden reefs at your love feast. They've really settled in, these certain people. They're part of the furniture, these certain people, well-liked, well-known, well-established, well-respected, even wearing a dog collar, these certain people, possibly having received preferment in the church, maybe a bishop, even, these certain people. And their activity is detailed in two ways. You can see it there in verse 4. They are ungodly people, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So they are lawless and Christless. It's moral failure and doctrinal failure. Sensuality is unbridled lust, outrageous conduct. It carries sexual overtones. Lustful, sexually unrestrained, strange, sensual behavior. But they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. That's so interesting. It's just they talk about God. They talk about God's grace. I'm sure they talk about the gospel all the time. They use the same language as us. They speak of the same things. That's what makes them so hard to spot. God is love, they say. God loves us all, they say. God offers free forgiveness, they say. Come to God in the name of Jesus and God's free forgiveness comes free of charge, they say. Don't worry about sin, they say. Don't bother with change, they say. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They are treating the fact that God graciously accepts sinners as an excuse for shameless sin. They're setting off one attribute of God, God's grace, against another attribute of God, God's holiness. Because God is full of grace, you needn't worry about his holiness. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. I was going to call this cheap grace. Come to Jesus. Don't worry about your sin because Jesus doesn't worry about holiness. Cheap grace. But I don't think that's quite right because of the last few words of verse 4. Just look at them. They deny our master, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Idolatrous grace, Christless grace. So their ungodliness works itself out not only in their behavior but also in their thinking. You might even argue that they're doctrine drove their ungodliness, or did their ungodliness drive their doctrine? Is it that they wanted to live ungodly lives, and so they chose to believe ungodly things? Or is it that they believed ungodly things, and that resulted in them leading ungodly lives? And I think the answer is yes. Both. One fed the other. Uh, Jude uses a really strong word for Lord here, suggesting divinity. They deny our only master and Lord, 
Jesus Christ. By the way, it's quite something, isn't it, for your brother to call you God? Something must have happened to make Jude say that Jesus was God. They deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. You can just imagine, can't they? Jesus was a wonderful man. He showed us so many good things. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Much of what Jesus said is good, but really today we live in a different age. Times have changed. There are other voices, each to his own. You have your truth, I have my truth. Jesus is just one voice. There are other ways to live. Let's pervert the grace of God into sensuality as we deny our only Lord and Master. Did their wrong thinking lead to wrong living? Did their wrong living lead to wrong thinking? Yes. And they were anticipated long ago, and we're going to discover this as we go through the letter, that this is no surprise to God. It has always happened. Look through the whole of the Bible, and you will find examples of exactly that, of idolatrous thinking leading to adulterous behavior and of lust leaving, leading to bad doctrine. So there we are. This is where we're going. And once again, Jude tells us that we are to contend. It's really interesting. In the 60s and 70s and 80s, there was a gradual erosion of truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ. When I went to theological seminary, there were people even teaching in the seminary who were saying that Jesus was not really our only master and Lord. He was just a a very wonderful human being. All the discussions then were around doctrine. All the discussions now are around morality. One has fed the other. You might say both feed off one another. Wrong thinking, wrong living, wrong living, wrong thinking. And that secret insurgency, they crept in unnoticed. You'd hardly have noticed back in the middle of the 20th century that they'd crept in, has become a rampant flood. And was it, what is at stake, oh, is the love of God, the calling of God, being kept by Jesus, Mercy, peace, and love are common salvation. And so difficult as it might seem, we as a generation, and I use that in the most broad sense, need to learn again to contend. And that's what we're going to be thinking about in the next couple of weeks. Let's pray together. We thank you so much, our Father in heaven, for the glorious blessings of the faith once for all delivered. We thank you that you have delivered truth to us from above, divine truth, revelation. Thank you that it is true and that it changes our lives absolutely. We thank you for the joy of being called and loved, and kept. We pray that you would teach us in this age to contend for this glorious truth. In Jesus' name, amen.